My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Today we have the second of our Academy of Natural Sciences COVID calls. And today we talk about the collections of this amazing institution and how they've fared in this extraordinary time of COVID-19. You can catch COVID Calls live every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time on YouTube Live. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also hear COVID Calls recorded as podcasts on Podbean or on Apple or anywhere you get, anywhere that you download podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for guests and future topics, and please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, June 9th, 2020, there are globally 7,172,874 confirmed cases of COVID-19. This is according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. That's up from 7,076,187 cases reported yesterday. Of those, 1,968,221 are in the United States. That's up from 1,954,936 yesterday. Now a total of 111,375 deaths reported in the United States from COVID-19. That's up from 110,876 deaths reported yesterday. And what I'd like to do now is go ahead and introduce our guests for today. And I have three wonderful guests today, so let me get to those. Um, Ted Deschler has been at the Academy of Natural Sciences in Philadelphia since 1987. Ted studied geology at Franklin and Marshall College in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, received a master's in paleontology at the University of California, Berkeley, and he was awarded his PhD at the University of Pennsylvania. Ted's responsibilities at the Academy of Natural Sciences focus on research, collection building, and on public programs within the museum. He served as a scientific advisor for the renovation of the Academy's Dinosaur Hall and a variety of other paleontological exhibits. Ted's work is a reflection of the rich history of vertebrate paleontology at the Academy of Natural Sciences, both in research and in public education. Second guest, Mark Sabaj, began studying fishes as an undergraduate at the University of Richmond, Virginia. After completing his master's degree there, he moved to the University of Illinois, where he earned a PhD. He joined the Academy as a collections manager in 2000 and is now the interim curator. He has collected fishes throughout the United States and on 43 expeditions to 12 countries on four continents. He's deposited over 10,000 lots of over 84,000 specimens into the Academy fish collection. Wow, about 800 lots shy of the leading contributor, the late James Bulky. Mark is also a fish photographer. And our third guest, Nikki. Chicatelli Stewart is the Chief Learning and Engagement Officer at the Academy of Natural Sciences. In her current role, she oversees the exhibits, learning, visitor services, and volunteer services departments, and is charged with creating an outstanding, meaningful, and relevant visitor experience for every single person that comes to the museum, and I suppose in these times for every person to whom the museum comes. Um, Nikki holds a Bachelor of Fine Arts from Ringling School of Art and Design in Sarasota, Florida, she majored in illustration and minored in photography. She studied at Johns Hopkins University, the College of New Jersey, and Moore College of Art and Design. Nikki, Ted, and Mark, welcome to COVID Calls. Thank you, Scott. Thanks. So today we undertake to do something a little bit different from what we've done before. And we're going to, so we're having a little bit of an experiment here. Uh, and I'm really glad people were willing to do this. We're going to try to actually, Mark is. Hello, his, can you uh, hear me? We can hear you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we're, we might be fussing with this a little bit as we go. Mark is uh, taking it upon himself, has taken the challenge to go into the academy and try to show us some of the collections, something that nobody in the public has been able to do. Um, for months now, and um, so he'll be trying, he's in the building, and the building, as I understand it, has um, some places where connection is easier and some places where it's harder, so we're gonna stay tuned as he comes in and out. Um, but I'd like to start, uh, while we're getting connected with Mark, just to ask um, Nikki and Ted, the question I've been asking all of my guests, which is, um, how, are, how are you, and how are things 
where you are, where you're calling in from. Nikki, can I start with you? Sure. I'm in Center City. I'm about four blocks away from the Academy. And things here are quiet today. It's been a, a busy past week with lots of people out um, demonstrating and, and talking and, and showing how they feel. So it's been a little noisier than usual in Center City, especially after so many months of quarantine where the city got very quiet. But tonight all is well and it's lovely. Ben, how about you? Well, I'm, I'm pretty lucky right now after being in Philadelphia for a good part of this quarantine period. I've uh, had the opportunity to come up to the Poconos. So I'm speaking to you from the Poconos, um, which uh, remote work is really becoming something kind of good. I, I, I do teach at Drexel in the Biodiversity, Earth and Environmental Science program, and I've had two courses this term, both which went remote. And I just, um, in an hour, is the, the last exam for GEO 101. So ready to go and um, finishing it up from this remote, remote location. <laughs> How's the, the situation there with social distancing, Ted? I know it's a it's, it's rural area. Yeah. Are people out and about? Is there a difference in behavior there than what you see in the streets of Philadelphia? It's a, it's a good question. Uh, we're in Monroe County, which is almost a New York suburb in some ways. People mm -hmm. do commute down Route 80 to New York, and it had a, a high percentage of cases uh, still in yellow. It's not one of the the, the counties that has gone to the green phase. Um, honestly, we're a little, uh, we're surprised sometimes we go out and people are not wearing masks. Masks. People are being distant. Businesses are certainly asking people to wear masks and come in in low numbers and all that sort of thing. Overall, I think it's all right, but I think um, there is a, a, some have a casual attitude toward things. Nikki, what are there any projections right now? Where does the academy fall in the state's um, uh, system in terms of when it's possible the academy could reopen to visitors? Do you have a sense of that? Right now, we feel pretty confident that we would be able to open once green happens and everyone can open because the academy's indoor spaces are not necessarily very big or uh, wide, if you will. Hallways and spaces are still I would say average size. They're not too small, but they're not oversized like some museums can be. So we would not be able to open until the green phase. And even then, there will be some spaces that will be too small to allow more than one person at a time to be in that space. So we're evaluating which individual spaces would not be safe with social distancing and which ones would work out really well for our visitors. I see. Yeah. So, so we're just um, now there's Mark. Okay. <laughs> Good. Um, Mark, I'm going to, while you're finding, uh, finding a spot there, I'm going to ask Ted if he wouldn't um, give us just a thumbnail sketch for those who may not be familiar with the Academy of Natural Sciences. It's an institution that everybody in Philadelphia is pretty excited about and have been. Um, but not everybody who, who listens to COVID calls is from Philly. So, Ted, would you mind giving us a little of the history? Oh, sure, sure. Um, well, the Academy is the oldest uh, natural science museum in North America. Um, actually, one in Charleston, uh, uh, South Carolina may have started earlier, but it hasn't been in continuous operation. And the Academy is certainly the oldest major museum in North America. It goes back to 1812, um, started in Old City, Philadelphia, a uh, bunch of people who wanted to share their libraries, share their natural history specimens. Um, to do to to learn useful knowledge essentially and to share it uh, among themselves and others. So um, it was really the enlightenment coming to this continent, coming to North America, with the uh, the academy and the science done there. Academy moved on up to Broad Street and then to its present location in 1876 uh, for the big centennial celebration, and we've been going strong for now more than 200 years. Uh, research ongoing, um, collections of more than 18 million scientific specimens, um, and um, still really living that, uh, you know, useful knowledge idea, presenting things to the public, sharing um, uh, our enthusiasm, our passion for the science, um, really kind of, we are Philadelphia's Natural History Museum and very proud of it. 
Is it unusual for um, a science museum to have so many scientists actively working on staff? Well, um, you know, it, that's a tough question, but there are things that we might call a science center, you know, places mm. that, that do. Nikki, Nikki understands this taxonomy probably better than I do, but um, there are science centers that focus on the exhibition, on the presentation of information. Um, museums like the American Museum in New York, the Field Museum in Chicago, the California Academy of Science in San Francisco, the Academy of Natural Sciences in Philadelphia, and, and many more have both a research side and a public uh, presentation side and education. And the trick is to make sure that, that those have enough interaction to make it a, 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 the authenticity, the, the real like passion for science and, and kind of being that place where people can vicariously and sometimes uh, directly learn what it's like to be a scientist. Um, so we hope that we are, you know, uh, the examples for people throughout the city. I know a lot of people come to us and say, Gosh, scientists say I got my first introduction to to science and getting excited about science at the Academy of Natural Sciences. Yeah, that is exciting. I mean, as a historian myself and, and a person who's worked a little bit on uh, more recently on Lewis and Clark, uh, what I I mean, it's your archive to me that gets me you know very excited. But the idea of merging all of these things, a, a real museum with scientific display, the archive, library, and then the scientists themselves make it a really, I think, a really, you know, special place. Um, and, yeah. um, Ted, let me stay with, with you for a second and ask about um, some of the special considerations right now of caring for the collections, considering that the Academy is closed due to the, due to the pandemic. Yeah, there, there's a whole um, echelon of staff at the Academy that it is their responsibility to store these collections, to care for them, uh, to keep them organized, to, to make sure that they're accessible to um, scientists from around the world, as well as right here in Philadelphia and at the Academy and Drexel. Um, and they are, they are naturally organizers. They're kind of naturally maybe worriers. I know that uh, a number of them have really uh, we, we had to sort of pick up and leave in essentially an afternoon back in March. And um, I think it's the kind of thing where everybody, their collections were prepared, but everybody wants to check and just make sure there wasn't a leak, there isn't some insect infestation and stuff. And, and that's where Mark Sabay has come in so, uh, so handy. We did get to uh, establish a couple of essential pe personnel, people who would have uh, permission to go and essentially be our eyes in the, in the collections. So. All of those 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 fears about uh oh a leak uh oh inf insect infestation uh, just kind of the entropy that can happen when you have so many things and so many cabinets and so much infrastructure um, that's all Mark has been the eyes for a lot of these collections managers and and, and I should say that this has been an amazing opportunity to uh, work on the uh, the digital aspects of collections, particularly those, our, our digital collections, databases, catalogs. Um, those are, have been completely accessible to everyone. And they've been, now that we're away from the physical material, the ability to spend time and improve those catalogs has been, I think, really wonderful for people. It, it, it really has. And so um, I think we, it's, it's, it's just very interesting that, um, we all care a lot about these things for all reasons um, uh, because they're so important for the future. But you know what? They're, they're all, some of these are 200 years old already. They were here before COVID. They were here during the pandemic in the, whatever the, the, uh, the Spanish flu pandemic was. They're still here now and they'll still be here for a long time into the future as long as we can take good care. Give an example of a particular um, specimen that might illustrate for us some of the unique problems of caring for old. Um... Gosh, it, it really varies across collections, as you can imagine. We have everything from, you know, insects that are pinned um, and put in boxes and carefully organized 
to bird skins, which are potentially susceptible to insect damage, as are dried insects, by the way, to botanical plants, you know, pressed between paper, to the fossils. I'm a paleontologist. The fossils I deal with um, are um, uh, prone to mechanical sorts of damage. Um, we have things in jars, lots of things in jars, um, a whole variety of things. And Oh, you know, I, I, it would be hard to pick any one that, that that is any more challenging than another. They just all need the kind of TLC that we have the experts to take care of in, in that building. And I'll, I'll also add, we have living collections too. Our right. animal center has a hundred live animals. We have invertebrates uh, in some of the laboratories. There are fish and other animals that are alive that are part of the research of what's happening. So part of those essential workers that are going in are caring for the animals who are there, uh, not unlike zoos and aquaria across America, who even if they're closed, the animals still need care every day. That's true for us too. How did you decide who would be the, the go-to people to be these sort of essential eyes and ears inside the academy? This is something, I'm assuming you had a disaster plan of some sort, but this is a quite unique disaster. Nikki, you want to <laughs> sure. give us a sense so, of that? You bet. So uh, our facilities team leads that effort and manages all of that crisis management stuff from planning to action. And they're sort of at the top of the phone tree, if you will. They've been working really hard and there's a small team of security personnel and facilities personnel who is there pretty much each day, whether it's person or two or three, quite limited in number, but still a presence every single day, which came in quite handy as things started to happen over the past week and a half with demonstrations on the parkway and, and caring for the space itself and securing the building. Um, it, it was There have been many layers of needing to do that over these weeks. When it came to collections, folks like Mark who are able to go in uh, because of the proximity of where they live, as well as their ability to understand and care for collections and check everything that needs to be checked on the non-living collections, that's part of how they were chosen. And Mark's not there every day, but several times a week going back and forth. Of course, our Live Animal Center, uh, our lead keepers and all the keepers that we have part-time and full-time have created a schedule to go in and take care of animals. But it's pretty limited to just those people as essential staff. And uh, even those folks were sort of whittled down to an even smaller list last week as um, streets around Center City were shut down based on demonstrations happening and to keep it limited and safe for everyone. It's a very fluid thing and, and everyone is pretty good about communicating what the needs are on a day-to-day -day basis. So I have some like very basic questions. You know, I'm as a historian, I'm sort of aware of how archives might work, like how the American Philosophical Society might work. And of course they have enormous responsibilities to maintain um, the condition of, of old documents, but that also is contention I think sometimes on the degree to which those documents are wanted and used by by the public, and also what kind of funding may be available to process certain parts of collection to keep them up. Um, what's your philosophy in the academy in terms of the collections, in terms of the maintenance of the collections? Every specimen in the building gets the same treatment, or there are some that are um, get very unique kind of kind of treatment. Help me understand that a little bit. I would say first would be everything gets uh, a, a, a high level of quality treatment. We do have some specimens and or library archive materials, which we might put on another echelon of, uh, of importance. Those would be in the biological collections. Those would be things like type specimens, which are essentially the, the name bearing specimen, the specimen that helps define scientific names. You know, hmm. In taxonomy, we, we need to choose a specimen to sort of represent what the name, what the words mean, essentially. And those are, are standards, so they're very important. Hmm. Um, and then in the library and archives, yes, uh, all are with unique, irreplaceable, wonderful things, uh, but we do have a even more special room and thankfully, just before um, this COVID crisis, uh, so just finishing up around that time, we uh, rebuilt part of the um, the library and archives, which included tripling the size of our rare book room. So these are things from the 17th and 18th century, uh, beautiful monographic treatments with hand-painted plates and just rare, rare things, wonderful objects. 
Um, and so we were able to put more of those in a room with better security and better climate control. We haven't talked about climate control, but temperature and humidity are critical uh, things to to keep track of and control when possible um, with any kind of specimen um, and people and live animals. But um, right. and we we struggle with that a little bit in our older building, which is kind of uh, an amalgam of, of, of a bunch of different buildings that have been put together through time. But so that's where we put our most, most important stuff is in our uh, new rare book room. It's called the Wolf McLean Rare Book Room. Was that scheduled to be opening right around in this in this time? Well, I tell you what, this was a COVID casualty. Uh, we would have had grand opening to wonderful fanfare and wonderful supporters and and new supporters and all the rest in mid-April. And um, well, actually, there was there was going to be a, a, an opening for our board and important members in April, and then to everyone else in May. We would have had all you Drexel professors come over. Uh, Scott, we would have had you in there by now. Um, so we have to figure out when and how that's going to be possible again, because we don't want to lose that enthusiasm and momentum for this new facility, which also includes a a revamped reading room, a smaller, uh, better technology reading room, uh, an, a digital imaging center, uh, compactorized archives, some new office spaces. And then the big old reading room has continued to be a big, beautiful room, but it's become more of a, a art gallery, um, a public area. And Nikki was working on exactly how we would start to fill that and, and do programming in there. And um, we've had to just put some of that on hold so darn yeah i'm sorry to hear that but we'll we'll wait for the time in which we can we can do that nikki yeah. i wanted to um i want to ask you like on a regular day so pre-covid i mean the role of taking on learning and engagement for an institution is as unique as the one as ted was describing that's a stout task so can you walk us through a little bit like what's an average day like for you yeah. Before I, COVID. The easiest, the easiest way to think about it is to think about all the different kinds of people who come to visit a museum on any day and what they need. Our job is to try to meet that need. Some people are most interested in the exhibits and in understanding more about the dioramas or the uh, dinosaur hall entries or the butterfly uh, exhibit. Those are people that are probably a little more self-guided. They're um, maybe interested excited about that content and they're drawn to that. Other people want to be in an active conversation with you about it. They want to talk to somebody and get to know someone. So educators on the floor and scientists and a blend of both, as well as our volunteers, are available in different ways. From a cart where you can look more closely at an insect that you've never seen that close before, to a, a lecture series or, or some kind of big event like um, Door 19, which is an evening for adults that's a small group size, but really great back of house access, really exclusive feeling. All of those different audiences on any given day want something different. And our job is to try to anticipate what those needs are and serve them. And if we can't serve them that day, to know when it is we can serve them so we can invite them back on another day. So that's why exhibitions and learning programs and volunteers are all sort of wrapped up together with visitor services who are responsible for making you feel welcome every time you walk in the door, all wrapped up in what we call the engagement division. And we're very lucky to have incredible people working on this team who do this work every day. And I'll just say, as you're describing all the specimens, they are impressive, but I still believe that the most important and amazing thing we have at the Academy are the people who work there. That's what we hear over and over connecting with someone like Ted and hearing about what makes something so special is far more valuable to our public than seeing that object all by itself. So that's what we strive to do. So by this time of the year, um, how many school groups would you have seen through the academy? Oh my gosh. On a daily basis, I would say Tuesday through Friday, we probably would see in the spring, especially we'd be seeing dozens of groups a day uh, many programs with sponsorships from a lot of funders to bring students to the academy, and many of them um, are really looking at the cost of a field trip and making it easy and free for a student to come. Some are looking at transportation. 
I think we probably see 150 to 200 on a regular day and more in high season, slightly fewer on a, a lower day. Right. The capacity of the museum on any given day is about 3,000 people a day. So okay. we don't reach that all year long, every single day, but we do reach it certain times of year, uh, especially with big programs like Paleopalooza, which is a whole weekend, uh, or Bug Fest, which is a whole weekend. Mm-hmm. In fact, Paleopalooza this year was something of a canary in the coal mine. It happened the weekend before we shut down. And we knew that COVID was creeping in, already to respond. And what we saw during that weekend was a much lower attendance than we have seen in the past five to six years. So we had an idea of what was coming. Uh, thankfully, we have a team who is ready to pivot at any moment and make these experiences available in new ways, uh, which we have done. But the Academy can be a really busy place depending on the weekend you choose to come. So talk to me then a little bit about the strategy of bringing those services or some version of those services yeah. online. So the Academy really has focused on the on-site experience because being with the real thing is just remarkable. There have also been a lot of outreach programs taking our live animal collection and our specimens and our educators to schools and libraries. I would say that was likely about 25% of what we did off-site programming and about 75% on-site. We had been planning over the six months leading up to this with a new master um, experiential plan to start to do more with the digital world And this moment allowed us to pivot very quickly toward all digital, since that's what we had. What I loved was that we took what we were doing at the Academy and figured out how to adjust it to continue these conversations that people valued so much that were more about what was happening in the world and what was happening to the environment as we all went home, and less necessarily about specimens and the study of objects. So as we have always done, the Academy was pivoting to what people needed and where that fit into our expertise. We've launched a series of programs for adults called Academy Conversations online. We've done them in person for a long time. And we did a series of three of them in a row, uh, one each week, and had three times as many people online than we would have ever been able to do in person just because of life and schedules and busyness. So we're seeing people gravitate toward this medium in a way that gives us a little bit of freedom, frankly, to try things and make mistakes and fix them, to experiment with technology, not feel the need to be so perfect the first time out, which is something that, frankly, as educators, I know our team and myself are always thinking we want to do it the best we can. So let's launch it when it's really right. This has given us a chance to prototype and be scrappy and do great stuff. And the response has been wonderful. People have really connected with the humanity of that because they're learning it on their end too. So we're all entering the conversation at the same place. I'm fascinated by your observation that that the the turnout for these events has has gone up. And I, yeah. I wonder, um, let me ask you, Ted, this question. I'll ask both of you this question, but Ted mm-hmm. first. Do um, you feel like the people's hunger for scientific knowledge right now is is increasing. I mean, we're living through this time in which there's premium on scientific understanding. How do you, how do you process that as a scientist yourself? Yeah. There's no doubt what you say that that there's a real premium on doing good science, showing that good science is the way to to move to solve problems, to move things forward. And I, I don't have any empirical evidence for it, but I can say that I hope that um, the science we do uh, is is relevant to people's lives. What I don't have empirical evidence for is if they are more interested now than they were in the past. Um, good science, I mean, science matters is one of those things that we, we say at the Academy all the time. And I, I hope it's something that uh, resonates with, with people and especially now. So Scott, I, I you know, as I say, I, I, did, I haven't been able to see this and maybe we won't know till we come back and we, we start getting more feedback from, from the public. Uh, we'll see if, if, if people are using our research collections and if scientists at the academy or outside the academy are asking new questions that have more to do with 
public health issues. I mean, we have a lot of rep, we can be relevant in a lot of different areas um, for a lot of different people. Um, but public health has traditionally been a fairly small slice of that. But there's no doubt that some of the resources we're a, we're a we're a library of life. We are we we have genetics of all of this sort of stuff. So technically, we might see a uh, an increase in 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 what what's done, who's doing it um, in the future. But I think Nikki could probably address maybe how the public may respond to science right now. You know, there, we've seen an uptake in people looking to science institutions like museums for news on this, this in this moment. People trust museums in a way that um, is staggering. It, there's lots of studies about this in the museum field that museums continue to hold the public trust and therefore you have to hold it carefully. We've been seeing the way our uh, media has been shared and viewed and used. And there are so many thousands of shares and views of what the Academy is putting forward even the simplest of things about eating locally, let's say there's a campaign, a, a social media campaign right now about eating locally. That campaign, as many of our others, has been shared on par with institutions like the Field Museum. It's getting seen in numbers that are not likely for an institution of our size or a city of this size. We're now being compared in the public uptake of our content with places like the field in Chicago. So there is a hunger out there for, for the information by the public. And what the Academy has done well is to say, here's the research that supports the thing we wanna tell you without getting bogged down in making it hard to understand. We've made it understandable for people that don't have a background in research and that wanna know more on their own, at their own pace, through their own research channels. And we give them the channel to do that. Right now, it's all online. When we get to open the doors again, we'll have a whole new universe we can open back up to them for that inquiry. But people want to know, and they trust museums for that information. It's our job to give it to them. Uh, I, that's so interesting, Nikki. I mean, the way you've said that, too. And I think it we've all been trying to make sense. Um, you know, everybody's become a sort of armchair epidemiologist, you know, because we've been forced to and to try to make sense of very complicated studies. And those of us who talk about this a lot, even you know, talk to a lot of experts, we, we've heard different, different things, not about the sort of fundamental science, there's plenty of consensus, but even about how to talk to the public in this time, right. there's been a lot of discussion about how best to message complicated scientific concepts. I'm, I'm really fascinated by this point you're making that, that the Academy has been sought out in this particular yeah. moment. I think there's been a lot of attention paid to certain People in our public life who may be um, inattentive is, is perhaps kind to science and maybe even hostile Indeed. to science. Mm -hmm. But there's also been, um, you know, Anthony yeah. Fauci has come through this moment and, and many, many other scientists at state and local levels have come through this moment um, increasing, uh, I mm -hmm. think, their stature among the public. Well, I think there's a, a I think there's something to be said for staying in your lane. So here's what we aren't doing. We're not coming out experts on COVID-19 because we're scientists. We're not saying that. Never have we said that. What we're saying is we know that this is happening and here's how it's affecting the environment. Here's how it's showing up at an effect on the natural world. Let's talk about that. So we're offering conversations in our areas of expertise without pretending to do things we don't do in this moment, which is some of what people are doing, to your point, people that maybe are not as qualified to do that. Because the Academy has stayed in their lane all of these years and talked about things we are experts on, we have built that trust, that public trust. But we also have the ability to see how all things are connected. And so when COVID-19 happens and it affects communities across the Philadelphia region, disproportionately, as most things do, we can then look at communities that are being affected and figure out how we serve them in other ways. We can look at things like the, the civil unrest that's been going on and say, you know what, that's not separate from environmental injustice. And we get to talk about that now in a new way based on the moment that we're in. But in all of this, we know our lane and we know what we know and we know what we don't. So we try to stick to what we know and how it affects 
people's lives at home and not just the research initiatives that are far less visible to the public than uh, what we do on Twitter. remind people that you're listening to COVID Calls, and this is the second of our Academy and COVID Calls discussions with Nikki Stewart and Ted Deschler and Mark Sabay, who gave a valiant effort to try to bring mm-hmm. us into the collections and is making his way, I think, out of the building. I've asked him if he could still talk to us, so hopefully we'll catch him on the parkway. Maybe he can tell us a little bit about what he works on there. Ted, uh, I want to come back to the, to, to the science um, the research side and the collection side a little bit and and because you made a comment earlier about um working with the digitized collections yeah and i really am fascinated by this so how walk me through even some of the logistics like how do you take the trays of butterflies or insects or fish vertebrae or whatever you may have at hand and then turn that into something that you can work on at home well um Oh, this kind of thing had to start more than 100 years ago. At some point in the late 1800s, the Academy and, and its collections were getting larger and larger. And, and people realized, OK, we got to start writing this stuff down. We got to start making a ledger. So, you know, you, these classic ledger books had a specimen number that was written on the specimen or pinned to the specimen, however it might be. And then everything about that organism when when it was collected where it was from what we think it is who collected it notes about it when it was a living animal and all that sort of thing so all so we've had these ledger catalogs in every collection um and sometimes like the collection i'm dealing with we had the big card catalog and what's a big card catalog but a sort of physical database right so essentially each of those cards now becomes a searchable record so the card catalog isn't just organized by number. You can now search by who collected it, where it came from, what species is it, what time of year, what date. Uh, for example, Mark looked into, do we have specimens collected during the Spanish flu pandemic? And the answer oh, was really? yes. Yeah, that we you just looked up a date and that, that range of things and boom, there it is. So um, we started with computer databasing, I guess, probably 30 years ago, you know, mm putting those same records um, on a computer uh, in a, some, some format or another. You know, everybody's familiar with Excel. It's essentially Excel, but bells and whistles and, mm-hmm. and things like FileMaker, which is what we use. So these and, are specimen um, descriptions with uh, metadata, where it was collected, when, by whom, this kind of information. Exactly. Now, descriptions, okay. not so much. It's mostly the metadata, a catalog number, and then uh-huh. all of that information about the specimen. But of course, we could add images to that database now and things, just as nice. you're as you're suggesting. Um, and so, with numbers like 18 million, obviously, this increases access to the collections significantly. You could get online, Scott, and search the fish collection and find out, oh, did they have fish from the Delaware River from the 1930s? Because I'm interested in when a certain kind of fish declined in the Delaware or what was shad fishing like back in the day and all that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So so um, the information is much more accessible. And then, of course, people access that information to then come see the physical specimen and maybe to sample it genetically or to to look at features, you know, in detail and all that sort of thing. So during this time where we've been away from the physical specimens, um, it's been sort of like I, I guess you would just say we kind of have been forced to focus on the details of cleaning up those catalogs. I know uh, Nate Rice in our ornithology department, for example, is just thrilled with the ability to update scientific names. As you may know, in taxonomy, uh, the, uh, an organism may switch into a genus of other things that it's more closely related to with our current understanding of kind of what is related to what. And that shifts around. So update taxonomy, clean up records in terms of using the same abbreviation for the state that it's in. Believe it or not, little things like that hmm. kill you in uh, when you're searching a, compu- a computer file. You need to have consistency in, in, in how things are presented and so forth. 
So we've all been doing that. In, in my case, in the paleontology collection, our collections manager, Ned Gilmore, we had never spent the time. It just didn't matter to us all that much to take these old ledgers of specimens going back to, to the early days of the academy with old handwritten script things and translated into the database, into our database. Mm -hmm. Everything new that we had brought in had gone right into a database and we could search it and print labels and do all nice. those great things. But now Ned is sitting at home with this ledger and doing this work because we were forced to. Ned can't go reorganize the frogs anymore. He's got to go um, do it, do the digital work. And so it's been great that way. That's, I mean, that's pretty remarkable to, to think about. This is um, some sort of a silver lining, the way you're describing yeah. it, in the midst of a terrible time, that it has provided some space to do some of the work that, that in the end, as you're describing it, Ted and Nikki, is going to make even more of the collections of yeah. the academy available to people who may never come to the academy. You know, you know what's a great example of that is in the archives, Scott. I know you're connected to the archives a lot. We have a project which is pending a, a grant proposal to transcribe field notebooks, like the mm. original notebooks from people in the 1920s and 30s going to Africa. Really interesting historical documents as well as scientific. And could you imagine the power of having all that transcribed so that you or another researcher could sort time, place, you know, purse, people, whatever the case might be, with not strictly a scientific like description in the field notebook, but these field notebooks connect to all sorts of humanities disciplines. So keep your eye on that too, Scott. Yeah, yeah that's yeah, story right. and stories that can now be told in our with people like Nikki as well. Well, those those field notebooks become launching points for not just research projects or study by people far away, but for exhibitions right there on site. Field mm -hmm. connecting with the specimens that were collected, connecting with maps that they made and stories about that part of the world. Those are rich and amazing things that attract people beyond the ones who already know they like science. If you know you like history or art or amazing penmanship, <laughs> something in a show like that that sparks your curiosity. And that's incredibly important in continuing to make the Academy relevant for everyone. I like it. So you both have very gamely been talking about um, this transition into the digital space and the, and the work that has been enabled in your, in your outreach. But... Let me share first that um, all my books are back on campus, uh, right. and I miss them. Uh, <laughs> and there's a and I I'm okay with that, you know. But I there's some of them I'd like to. I mean, part of my job I chose because I like to be around books. Yeah. And and so I want to ask you that too. I mean, what's it like to not be in in the space? Ted, thirty years with the academy. Yeah. It yeah. must be something. Uh, so, well, the impactful thing, it's, it's somewhat similar to you. Um, our research group, and there's a, a handful of us doing research at the Academy in fossils. Um, we have, sounds old fashioned, but I've always said, oh, I'd rather have a hard copy of that paper, that scientific paper, than, than, the, than the PDF. Now I'm a little sorry about that because I have, and, and the PDF may not be something that we have access through any of our library systems. So I'm, um, we're missing some of those that we are trying to do some manuscripts, you know, scientific papers during this time. And we're missing some of those. That'll be, we actually sent Mark Sabay into the building about two weeks ago. And with his, it, it worked uh, via FaceTime, had him walk around my office and say, oh, it's that file folder. Hey, Mark, there he is. <laughs> that file folder over there has some papers that we need. And he grabbed it and handed it off to my colleague, Jason Downs, outside the museum. So, so that's the kind of thing we absolutely miss. And um, we are getting now requests also from outside researchers who need to know something about a detail about something in our collections. And I'm, those are stacking up. And when we get back, it's going to be, okay, this person needs a photograph of this specimen. This person needs to know what we have from this expedition, that kind of stuff. Right. So the backlog of the connection to the physical is there. It's, it's, yep. it's building. Yeah. 
Mark, I see you have materialized. I, I have. I have. Can you hear me okay? We can, and I'm sorry, and um, using this platform here, you may have been waiting a little while. I'm sorry it's taken me this, this long to bring you, bring you in, but I'd like to get your – maybe you no can tell us a little bit about what you were trying to show us. Um, well, uh, I, I guess first off I'll just say it's, it's pretty well documented in the literature that during the Spanish flu of 1918, uh, scientists had a lot of trouble with Wi-Fi. It was very spotty and – yeah. Well known. Um, you know, it was just in this building. It's uh, it's it's. Been they like called it telegraphy, then, Mark. But yeah, same. <laughs> um, so I come in once a week to do uh, facility checks to basically check the collections to see how they're doing, um, to see if we've sprung sprung any leaks or if there's any um, in botany in particular is vulnerable to uh, pests that might. Uh, infiltrate the collections. Uh, in my collection of dead fishes, those are mostly stored in ethanol, so jars of ethanol. So for the most part, they're fine. Um, but I think a big problem for all, of, for all of us is that when we're in the building, we're in our collections every single day. And that's the best way to monitor the condition of the collection, because if you're in there every single day, just by stochastically you're more likely to find a broken jar or a failed mm -hmm. lid or an insect in your uh, herbarium uh, or something something awry and the fact that this place has been empty since since late March uh, a lot of us are a little nervous that that things that we would normally catch are 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 going unnoticed especially as you're coming into the springtime which would be the exact moment that some of those insects might start finding their finding their exactly. way inside, huh? And, yeah, and so. historically, we did have a problem with an infect, in, insect infestation in the in the two thousands. And for herbarium, that's that's a worse nightmare. Collection managers, curators of herbaria, lose sleep at night um, with nightmares of insect infestations basically the what you need to do at that point is you need to take all of the herbarium sheets out of your collection and freeze them uh I'm not, I'm not sure to what degree but it's very cold to kill all the bugs and then re and then fumigate your space and then reintroduce them and that process will take at least a year if not longer so that an infestation like that can wipe out a collection well they eat very slowly, so <laughs> I mean, uh, yeah. if you if you catch it in time, you should be okay. But uh, it's it's a big collection; it occupies a large space, so you might get an infestation in in one particular cabinet. And then, if you get if it's if it's if those cabinets are scattered throughout the collection, then you got to worry, sort of like a virus, that maybe other cabinets have been seeded with an infection. So. Uh, the only choice you're kind of left is is to remove the entire collection and, and freeze it off site, which is what they did back in the mid 2000s. Mm -hmm. So what's it been like to be in the building alone? <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting. It's it's um, a lot of us who study taxonomy, who study scientific specimens, were kind of loners to begin with, but this is a <laughs> Okay. This is a whole new level of uh, loneliness. I mean, <laughs> I'm sure your colleagues will take that in the spirit in which it's intended. Oh but... yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, and yeah, you you uh, you you miss your your dead specimens that you that you study and and uh, you might have collected and vouchered and and what have you. So. Um, it's nice being back in the building and, and to see everything's okay. But at the same time, it's, it's just a, it's an empty shell and there's, there's actually, there's, there's nobody here to interact with. So um, I don't spend as, as long as I thought I would. I, I think that this is um, in a few weeks, I'm going to have a similar conversation with some folks at the American philosophical society. We're going to talk about kind of similar tasks that they're doing there with their, their old documents and, and collections, Mark. And it, it just speaks to something I think most people don't, don't think about just the maintenance that's required of all of our systems, but the specialized maintenance that's required of these very delicate systems, like what you're just like a collection, like what you're 
you're describing there. Um, Ted was telling me about, uh, was talking about the, the process of the long process of um, describing the collections and then eventually bringing them up online so that people can work remotely. And, and you've been doing that as well with your, with your stuff. Oh yeah, definitely. Um, so what this has given a lot of, a lot of us an opportunity for is to, is to go to uh, online publications of historical documents and tie some of that information directly to our specimens to, to enhance the, um, the voucher data, the locality data, the collector data for, for those collections. Because if you're, at least for ichthyology, um, our ichthyology collection got started in the late 1800s. Mm -hmm. uh, our first curator uh, started work in about 1900. And back then, a curator, almost every fish that curator brought into the museum, they'd write a short note on it somewhere. And so, and that note might have more information than what was put on the label or put into a database a hundred years later. So going back to that original literature uh, can be very helpful for tracing the origins of, of uh, some of these specimens. And I was, earlier today, I was looking around at some of his publications in circa the Spanish flu and mm. um, absolutely nothing was mentioned. <laughs> really? Nothing at all. I can't find, the only thing, I mean, and this is from, it's kind of nice, aquatic life from uh, May of, or July of 1919. And, you know, businesses are advertising on the back of this. There's there's no mention of here of, of you know, a Spanish flu, flu killing hundreds of thousands of people in the United States. There is mention of a, um, of a fish that father got from uh, Florida. From an, from an angler. It's amazing. So that history is is moving right alongside, and they're still still collecting. Oh yeah, they still had meetings. So there there were meetings of ichthyologists and herpetologists, people who study amphibians and reptiles. There were meetings. Uh, at then it was mostly an American society. They were held in in uh, New York City in November of nineteen nine uh, nineteen eighteen. So this is after it had broken out, and they, as far as I know, the society, this this same society which I belong to, we canceled our meetings months ago, and and most societies have canceled their meetings throughout the entire year. So they they still had a meeting in 1919 in, in November, but it looks like the 19 uh, I'm sorry 1918, but it looks like the 1919 meeting, which was scheduled to happen in Philadelphia. It looks like it might have been canceled due to that. I need to, mm -hmm. to research that a little more. Yeah. Scott, by, by the way, um, <clears throat> Mark and others are following the tradition of collecting during the pandemic. Uh, certainly socially distant, certainly permitted and all that sort of things. But I know our insect folks have been really busy collecting during the pandemic. Mark, you've been out a little bit. I know Ned Gilmore, is, he has a uh, salvage um, permit to to collect roadkill snakes over in Jersey. So every time we have our little departmental meeting, Ned holds up a, oh, I found this snake on the road <laughs> in the jar. They're all records. They're all specimens. They're all genetic specimens. You know, it's all terrific. So it's, that goes on. Yeah. Last week um, we were talking and um, great conversation last week. And one of the points that was made, we were talking about biodiversity and one of the points that was made is that um, this may be a moment in which people are, are I think earlier on when the, when the shelter in place was more clear and fewer people were out, maybe that there was some animals encroaching more into suburban or even urban spaces than you wouldn't have seen. But, but that now it seems to be that just people have more time. And I'm saying people who have this freedom have more time to be out in nature and and I wonder I wonder about that. I mean, to any of you who may be thinking about how this moment in time, we talk a little bit about a hunger for science, and Nikki talked about the academy's already solid, but maybe even increasing role as a sort of arbiter of science of science in this moment. But what are, how are people changing the way they think about nature right now? It's a big question mark. But let me put it to you. I mean, more people out in in the park, more people with free time, more people taking pictures of birds. I can't speak to fish. 
<laughs> is this an opportunity for education to get more people excited about about the environment? What do you think, Mark? Oh yeah, sure, definitely. I mean, every time I go out fishing, with I, I bring my daughter, and sometimes I've I've brought uh, also her two friends, but a similar in age. We've been two families been quarantining ourselves together, um, and it's wonderful. It's wonderful because I don't know. It, you know, when you go to the market and you, you're questioning whether or not to go into that Acme to buy your food, and it's full of people. And you know that virus is probably in there somewhere as well. Um, it could be a little anxious. But if you go to a park or a river and you look out and you don't, you know, you might see two people picnicking far away. You think to yourself, oh, this is this is clean. This is <laughs> this is healthy. Uh, I won't have a problem here. So um, it's 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 interesting how this kind of plays. I mean, that's what nature is is is. Um, Nature, I think, is more. You're, I'm more able to connect with nature now more than ever because of that extra uh, incentive. Other people have described that the same way. But Ted, you can't just go out and, and engage in a in a paleontological expedition at this time, can you? I mean, no, not an expedition, but I have field sites uh, two or three hour drive from here in green counties. Um, I haven't made that effort yet. Um, I need to do it in the proper way, of course. Uh, and of course, I probably have to do it on my own or someone in another car and all that sort of thing. Um, so I can continue. Uh, I, I hope to continue, hopefully, before the end of this month, get out at least at least one more time. Um, and I do think, Scott, especially, I mean, I'm hearing about garden centers never, garden centers are busier than ever. And uh, yeah. part of the, it's, a, it's an object. But I, from what I can see, birding is is as popular, more popular than than ever. Um, I was at a bike store, and the guy was saying, "We're out of bikes. Everybody's buying a bike." You know, so yeah. I, that's I, I, let's hope that um, science in general, natural science more specifically, is going to be part of people's uh, takeaway, um, and and they'll learn to love it um, from this from this series of events. I think in in such a in a time where we've been presented with so much loss, uh, those are good things to think about. That's I mean, those nice. are good lessons to, to hold on to. We're almost coming up on time. I want to remind people who are listening to COVID calls. We're talking to Mark Sabay, Nikki Stewart, and Ted Deschler, the Academy of Natural Sciences. And I guess I have one more question to get each of you to react. Nikki, to you first. When you get a chance to be back in the building and you're thinking about that first post COVID-19, we're not going to be rid of it for a while, but that first post-COVID-19 engagement, exhibit, special, you know, event, what what, what do you have in mind? Give us just a little bit of your thinking right now, because I do think this is one of those moments in which the world is changing. The way people conceive of science, the way they think about risk, the way they think about our nation, the way they think about race and justice, a lot of things are in flux right now. So what, what do you have in mind? Give us a, a little bit. Perhaps the silver lining of all of this is that in this moment of slowing down and taking a minute to look more closely, we're all recognizing that everything isn't just one thing. It's not one dimensional. Whatever it is you're looking at, whether it's people or issues or a diorama at the academy, there are many layers to things, to people and to topics that we want to talk about. And the time we're spending in nature on those bikes, they're out of, out of stock everywhere and, and fishing with our kids is causing us to look a little bit more closely at the details around us. And I think that's the key to returning to the academy with the idea in mind that you get to see all of this with new eyes, fresh eyes, maybe, mm -hmm. and maybe focus less on the touchable interactives that we've had in the past, which for a long time, museums aspired to do more of and go in a different direction with self-guided initiatives that help you look more closely at the details that maybe you have not looked at in the past three or four visits. I think we're all going to have a chance to look more closely at what's around us and notice the details and ask questions in new ways because we will enter the academy as different people. Every time you go into the academy, if you're different, you're going to be looking for different things. 
So our job will be understanding what's different about you, what you're looking for, and helping you find it in a new way. That's really the core of who we need to be going. Mark, same question to you. How is this changing you as a scientist? You've been in the building, but not right. in the ways you were before. What yeah, do you so, see on the other side for you? Um, well, it's, it's kind of the realization that, that, at least in the short term, people want to be outside. So I like to think, okay, that's great, but um, maybe the academy through not just our what we have in the building, but through our online content can um, inspire people to ask questions. Uh, okay, you go outside, you saw something. What was it? Uh, I've never seen something like that before. Where would I go to to learn more information about it? And for for this region and different places around the world, we have a lot of information on 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 biodiversity. Mm -hmm. And um, both online through our collections and through the exhibits we have in the building ourselves and our staff, this is a place where you can come and learn more about it and perhaps be inspired to to to, to explore more. So uh, I guess being a part of that is is um, we were a part of that before, but I think now it's it's as we've had this time to pause and think. We, we realize how that is, how, how just how important that is and are, are taking that to heart. Ted, I guess that's the, the final question to you there, the same one. How do you see your your own thoughts about science maybe changing at this time or as an educator? What's, what's it going to be like for you coming out of this? Oh. Hold on, Ted. We've, we've, got, uh, we've got you on mute there, Ted. Let's see. I did that. My, okay. Thank you. I have such a long-term uh, timescale to the work I do in terms of how long ago these organisms lived and so forth that I, I, um, I, I think um, my science won't change all that much. I, I'm anxious to get back to, to be with those specimens, to be with uh, that literature, uh, to be part of reopening uh, of, of various parts of the academy. Um, I think the other piece, though, and Scott, I think you can relate to this, is I've had really interesting experiences teaching remotely this term. Um, I know we were forced into it. I know uh, uh, most of us were not experienced in using the, the technology and the various tools that became available, but now we are. And so I really want to think hard about how best, how to use this technology in the future, along with face-to-face -face teaching, um, to be a more effective teacher. I think I, think I learned some stuff. Um, and I, there were things that I was being that, like, you know, old dog not wanting to learn a new trick kind of thing in the past, but I had to learn those tricks, and they're good. They can really work to augment. Again, I want to be face-to-face -face with the students. I really value that, um, and I think it's very important. But I think some of what I learned, I need to now incorporate into the future teaching uh, that I'll do. So I think I'll be looking at, at that kind of thing uh, and then just getting things going again uh, with my old bones and, and so forth. <laughs> One of the really great things I hear each of you saying is, is, you know, so this is an inflection point. Certainly, I think, Nikki, you said we're going to come back into the into the academy different from how we left it and, and visitors who've been there previously are going to come back to it with new questions and new eyes. And it's, it's, um, you know, Ted, I'm like you, I think some of this, this, this remote learning, um, has opened new ways of thinking and potentially I hope can democratize higher education and can democratize learning more generally. Um, but at the same time, I'm not quick to rush to the idea that, oh, well, this means this is the death of the museum and this is the death of the yeah. university. I don't accept that. I think we are searching for a new equilibrium. And I wonder, you know, in terms of the academy, it's it will always have that magnetic pull as a place. And um, but at the same time, you've been describing the ability to take what's in the academy and bring it and bring it to people. Yeah. too. Yeah. 
So, and I think that hybrid yeah. is really important going forward because, as you said, even when we get to green and we can open those doors, we have an auditorium, let's say, that holds, uh, you know, upwards of 350 people. But we can't put 350 people in that room safely for the foreseeable future. So how do we gather 350 people to talk about something? And it's going to happen just like this. This is how we're going to still be able to do that technology and through connecting with people who are so passionate about what they do that you get excited about your next visit to the academy. It's these aren't mutually exclusive. It's not one or the other. I think these things are really great partners and we have to do well at making our online and our on-site work um, more cohesive and more even and have them mesh together more beautifully. So that's a challenge that I'm excited about taking on. Well, thank you all so much. And Mark, you're not totally off the hook. I think the next time you go in there, I might have to ask you to give a couple of minutes of a cell phone video or something. I can get that from you. I know some people are really sure. eager to see a kind of behind the behind the scenes. And and I think we should be using this this moment to whet people's appetite to get oh, back in there and yeah. see things that they couldn't see. No doubt. Yeah. So I want to thank everybody for listening to COVID Calls. Tomorrow is um, at the usual time, 5 o'clock. It's a researcher's roundtable. I'll be talking to Jason Ludwig and Elena Sobrino. And I want to thank my guests today, Mark Sabay, Nikki Stewart, and Ted Deschler from the Academy of Natural Sciences at Drexel University. Just a great conversation. Thank you all so much for your time. Thank you. Thank, you, thank you. Stay healthy, everyone. COVID Calls, 5 o'clock every weekday. And we will talk to you tomorrow. All right. Take care. Take care.